back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm freezing my balls off because right now the city of Houston is a huge chunk of ice. So if you hear uh, some kind of grinding sound in the background right now, well, that would be because I've got a space heater going. I need something to stay warm in here because, guys, it's snowing in Houston. As we speak, it is snowing. So we've got ice and we've got snow. They're both on the ground right now, and it's it's fucking insane. So to help me stay warm, I've got... I'm armed with uh, a Dr. Pepper into which I've poured liberal amounts of bourbon. So we're going to see... We're going to see how loose-lipped I get tonight. But I am (laughs) not alone because every seventh episode, I take the time to talk about what I can only describe as weird stuff. And... For these Weird Stuff episodes, I'm always joined by Two True Freaks co-founder and former servant of Crom, Mr. Chris Honeywell. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Thank you. Uh, you know, I think this is a, a maybe a safer topic for, for if you're going to be hitting the bourbon than what we usually do. <laughs> I don't think it... The, yeah, I don't think this topic... Well, I guess it could... It, it, it could be you know something that you would would get someone's dander up but not not as much as what we usually discuss well and in part that's kind of intentional it's kind of not intentional but kind of intentional you and i've been wanting to talk about this for a while but stuff it's a is fun just topic yeah yeah it's like it just kept getting delayed but there were so many potentially controversial things that we talked about that I thought, you know, we need to have a safe subject and you reminded me of this. And so I thought this is going to be great. But what Chris and I are going to be talking about tonight, guys, is CGI. And by which I mean the visual effects that you see in movies, CGI, I guess to some degree, you know, uh, how well does it really work? And if it works how best to use it and i don't really have too much of a structure for this i was just going to let things go wherever they want to go just using this as like our starting subject and if we end up talking about something else entirely well such is life now for uh before we even get going into uh cgi this is just something i've just kind of wanted to say in public for a while now Uh, and i don't think i've even I, i don't think i've ever said it to you but you know i was watching Star Trek the motion picture for the first time in like a really long time. It wasn't all that long ago. And it's kind of weird how your mind can play tricks on you sometimes where you remember you you remember especially for like pre-digital technology types of movies like Star Trek the motion picture, you remember them a certain way, but when you actually go back and watch them, no, those effects like really do hold up. Like Empire Strikes Back, I still think looks fucking amazing, right? Mm-hmm. But specifically with Star Trek: The Motion Picture, that first time that the Enterprise goes into goes into uh, I don't even remember, like warp six or something like that. I don't even remember. But uh, basically, there's all this like kaleidoscope type of uh, effects and stuff that are going on. And one of the things that kind of hit me is that this definitely looks handmade in some ways it was more i think it was i think are you talking about um when they when they hit the wormhole yeah and things start getting slow yeah that you know like all rainbowy and all that 
Mm -hmm. And there was probably some computer assistance in that, but it, that was probably old-fashioned slit screen and optical printing effects to do all that. Well, the the thing that I like about it, number one, is that I mean, there's craft, there's like real craftsmanship that has to go into that. You have to be an artist of like maybe two or three different disciplines in order to do that. Yeah. In a in a convincing way. The other thing, though, is that I kind of like the imagination of that because, I mean, what we're talking about here is something so completely theoretical to begin with anyway. No one really knows what it looks like when a ship goes into warp, so how are you to... Who is anyone to say that it would look like this or it wouldn't look like that? But when you think about it, if you're outrunning light, you're outrunning color. And so maybe there is some kind of color distortion that takes place and... and it's one of those things that I think, especially looking back on it all these years later, I think that just looks freaking amazing. That is an extreme. And there was probably an amount of science put into what the, you know, they're, they're figuring out what they were going to do. Maybe not completely scientific because Star Trek was always, you know, going to draw the line at the story or presentation of it, but they always wanted to have science in there so somebody probably said well if something like that happened there would probably be distortions in time and and your perception of it so that was their trying to be you know i think they were trying to definitely with star trek the motion picture split the difference between star wars and 2001 a space odyssey right you know, of that just that hard science fiction and you know, a fun story. Right. And the everyone wants to point back to Jurassic Park as the moment when the dam done broketh. You know, it's one thing for a movie like The Abyss, or even you could say uh, Terminator 2, to have these primitive but still real, or at least authentic, uh, CGI uh, effects. But, you know, for whatever reason, it's Jurassic Park that really stands out in everybody's mind. But for me, the real watershed moment for CGI as a storytelling tool, not as a as a like a showcase type of thing, you know, like how in a musical everything stops so everyone can play a song. Well, that's the way that movies had been done for the longest time. Everything stops for the big CGI extravaganza showcase moment. And yeah, then the story well, picks Jurassic Park definitely had that, you know. It was almost a meta moment of like, all right, here we go. You know, we're taking that step of where everything you see here is made by a computer. So, you know, see how this looks. And they hit it with music and, you know. So that that is just a very easy touchstone. But there's been a lot of CGI before that and... Yeah, you know, and, and before you even got to CGI, there's been a lot of like computer, like assistant. I mean, Empire Strikes Back was computer assistant had had the go motion. Yeah, and um, well, what I was gonna uh, point to as like the real moment that CGI like really hit the mainstream, I was gonna say it's actually the Phantom Menace, because this was visual effects integrated into the story. Now we can say that it was done obtrusively, it was done very obnoxiously, it was done in, in the most distracting way possible. But at the end of the day, there are very few shots in that, like very few camera angles in that movie 
that don't have some kind of uh, computer enhancement, if not outright CGI. There's very little of that. I think maybe only two or three shots in the entire movie. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I was just going to say almost nothing. And, and yeah, that that's was... almost adds another word. That almost like Phantom Menace's CGI and it brought the, the just the vernacular of like digital to to play too, you know. Yeah. And by by episode two, he was filming it digitally. Is episode one was filmed on film, and then yep. all the digital stuff was added later. And and by the second one, it was like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna capture it all digitally too. So, yeah, that was that was where it took its quantum leap. From I mean, even Jurassic Park, a good you know, they made a full size t-rex for that you know practical t-rex for shots and that and um and phantom menace was whether it's george lucas didn't want to physically get up out of the chair or whatever you know bam it was just like this is this is the first movie that's basically a sound stage in green screen and it still split the difference a little bit because it's like okay we'll go to we'll go back to tunisia or whatever to 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 film this stuff but um, by episode two, pretty much it was like almost like here's here's a, here's what movies built in a computer are going to look like. I guess I don't know if this came before Phantom Menace, but uh, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Um, I think that was if memory serves, that was between Phantom Menace and Attack and of the Clones. So that that was another that was a real was... pioneering style though that that was that was a whole style and just sort of like the can thing and that also did the like we're gonna digitally um bring a character back from the dead yeah for for this movie too so and so see i i i I i'm old i think back to like the last starfighter being one that was one of the first ones where all the spaceships were computer generated, you know, or Tron to to an extent. Although a good amount of Tron is is actual practical things, but and that and that kind of leads into at least what I what I've been wanting to ask you about for a while. What type of CGI, however you choose to define the term CGI, like your interpretation of that? What type of CGI, if any, do you gravitate toward? Do you like the big, flashy, eye-candy, eye-catching type stuff? Like basically anything that we saw in The Phantom Menace? Or are you more of a fan of like more realistic types of effects along the lines of like the Mad Max uh, movie? Well, that was... that The the two examples I was going to pull out is probably... And one's an uh, an early example... And then a modern example would be the Mad Max Fury Road is a perfect example of he only used CGI to achieve what he couldn't do practically, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, he duded up the, the, the sets and the, the, the terrain using CGI, but he made sure there was a good amount of just physical stuff happening there, which made it feel like, I mean, even when he's using practical stuff, 
for Mad Max movies. He he invented a style of like mounting the cameras on elastic cords and you know use of smoke and um focus so you're not so so like say the far background is in focus so you can have still sets of trucks and cars and stuff and have people on them when they're crawling on them and have it look like they're driving through the desert and even when you have a long shot of the background it's far enough away so the background wouldn't be moving enough and the smoke going by gives it that so basically what I'm saying is a lot of Mad Max movies, as physical as they, they claim them to be, and they are, there's a lot of trickery that's relied on to convey that. And the way he he put the, the digital in, except for a couple standout examples, it was it was seamless. And before that, I think the, the great example would be uh, Forrest Gump. Yes. where there was a lot of CGI in that that you just weren't even going to think about. You know, you weren't going like, oh, I wonder how they did that. It was just like Lieutenant Dan has no leg. Yeah, and that that's done as a matter of routine nowadays. But, you know, just but in, in it was a days, very avant-garde it, idea at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of it was there for you. not. And, and I think most CGI is best if you don't know that it's CGI, you know, there's, there's moments of grandeur of like showboating CGI that I love, like, um, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One is, uh, is, is a moment where it's, you know, it's in the movie and stuff, but for anybody who's a Star Wars fan, when they see it, they go like, oh my God, they're CGIing, you know, Peter Cushing. And that came off really good. That the 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 reveal on Jurassic Park worked. Re- I was in the theater for that, and and uh, people were awestruck. The thing about it is, is like anything, and it can be a crutch. So when you have swimming CG soup, a lot of times that just takes you. It takes me out of the story. You know, I can watch and enjoy a big swimming CG soup. But it takes a there's a certain amount of artistry that can be put to it. We're in such we're really technically just in the early days of CG. I I want to compare it in a lot of ways to all. It's basically it's no different than any other special effect, practical or however you use it. And when people talk about um, the uncanny valley with CGI. Mm-hmm. Which is a real valley. thing, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the full reason why a crawling screen full of just like random CGI doesn't really do anything from you for you because you don't feel like you're in it. You feel like you're watching it like a video game. But um, that uncanny valley has has existed forever. And when you take a hurdle or when you take a or, or you raise a bar in special effects there's always that moment when it comes out and people go like, oh, my God. And that was Jurassic Park and and um, the Terminator for for CGI when it first. But, you know, like even when you go back to the beginning of film, that first um, film they had of a train coming into the station would send people running out of the theater and ducking for cover because oh, yeah. they'd never seen anything before. And when King Kong came out. 
you know, there'd been animation before that, but you know, nobody today is going to watch King Kong, the original King Kong and take it for reality. But when it came out, it was so new and amazing to people and up on a big screen that, you know, it was visceral to them. It was, it was scary and it was real to them. And, um, you know, before, before CG, you had to do frame by frame and, you know, animation to do, to do stuff like that. And, uh, there was a lot of it that looked like crap, <laughs> but it, you know, you, and you looked at it and it looked fake, but you were like, okay, this is what has to be done to get, um, um, a movie done and get that scene. So you, you, you accepted it and you, you sort of, you would let your brain accept that as being real, but then enter someone like, um, Ray Harryhausen or Jim Danforth who are really extra skilled at it. You know, they can't, they, you know, they don't just make the four legs move. They put a little emotion into it or add some details to the motion that most other people wouldn't take the time to do or wouldn't notice. And you would all of a sudden like Ray Harryhausen's stop motion animation was more valued than just Joe, you know, arm and leg mover. So the same goes for, I, I think we're, you know, we're being kind of demanding going like, I want CG to be a hundred percent real. Now it's, they're getting there. They're trying to. And when it's done with people who know what they're doing and put some art into it and some thought into it. And, um, like, uh, I think a great example is, um, the last, um, modern planet of the apes movie where pretty much all those apes are motion captured or CG apes, but they, when they would have a whole forest full of apes going about doing their thing, they, didn't make sure that they lit the forest so you could see every detail on them and everything. Some of them were just in the shadows and moving shapes and stuff like that. And it looked real, you know, that nobody, that they, um, sacrificed showing off their work for art, for realism and artistic effect. And, and it paid Which off. Which is weird for a bunch of computer animators. I mean, they're not necessarily known for their restraint, you know? Well, it, it might be the director demanding, you know, what the director's demanding from them or the art director or some, somebody there is somebody there is making sure that, it, you know, that, yeah, you know, maybe making it clear to the animators that, uh, you know, hey, if we win an Oscar for the CGI, it's going to, you know, it'll be just as good for your reputation than if you have, you can see every hair on every ape for your show reel, you know? Well, the thing about it is for the longest time, and maybe even to, to some degree now, but for the longest time, what I, what I kind of resolved for myself was that there is some applicability for CGI when it comes to inanimate objects. So if you're going to have a, you know, a car zooming down the highway or something like that, but you don't want to risk a stunt man's life, you know, moving them down a, a, a real, like a real stunt man in a real car on a real freeway, really going 250 miles an hour. I understand that. So 
maybe you can CGI that since a car is kind of inanimate to begin with anyway, and so who's really going to know the difference? Or even if they do, well, come on, we all understand. Nobody wants to do this for real. I get it. And that, I used to think, is where things with CGI typically worked the best. But when I had to start sort of reevaluating that, at least on a case-by-case basis, was actually, of all things, it was uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings, Mm. where Mm -hmm. that, there are a couple of kind of rubbery CG moments for Gollum here and there. But by and large, that's a that's a very well rendered character, and it's and partly it's to do with the the technique they used to get there. They just painted over the actor, so he really was on the set. He really was like rattling, you know, tree branches and stuff. He really was there. Well, that's and Andy Serkis is the modern Ray Harryhausen, basically. He's and he was he was a common element with the Planet of the Apes too. Yeah, uh, movie. And uh, he not only is, you know, he's he's obviously a gifted physical actor. He's a gifted actor in general, but he also has a physical style. And whether it's just his physical style or whether he's just especially like has a really good talent for getting in that suit, that motion capture suit and not. You know, maybe maybe when he gets in the motion capture suit, it doesn't distract him. He still can get into character and do his thing. And what whatever it is he does, he does it better than other people do with motion capture, and his characters end up being more. Well, there's um, a texture to it, you know. Yeah. I don't know. There's a. I was then as now. I mean, I realize that Gollum is kind of old school, especially for a lot of young young listeners. If I even have any. But yeah, I still but, regard I mean, Gollum as like a major achievement. In, in, you can't in undersell how how when Gollum came on the screen, how people were just like, "Oh my God!" Not only is this the perfect portrayal of Gollum that we've imagined, but the people who were just sort of newbies to it were like, "This character is convincing as a CGI character. He's not like Jar Jar. He he had there was a, more of a feel of solidity." and reality to him and his face and every everything about him felt like a physical thing it was it was one of those it was one of those spots in in you know in film history where you're watching it going like okay we're, we've taken another step forward here with this well and one of the things that kind of helped the comparison and this is going to sound mean i know but one of the things that i honestly I don't know that I necessarily would have appreciated Gollum. Maybe I would have. You know, I don't know. I, but I, I tend to think I might not have appreciated Gollum as much as I might have. Except not very long after The Two Towers came out, another movie with another very prominent uh, CGI character also came out. Where I think it would be safe to say the CGI effects here are far less convincing. And... If it sounds like I'm talking about the 2003 Hulk movie, it's because <laughs> I am in fact talking about the 2003 Hulk movie. Now that's the Ang Lee one, right? Yeah, that was filled with some bad CGI. As a matter of fact, the the first time I the the first time I saw that, it, I got a copy of it before the movie came out, mm-hmm. and it had for a lot of the science fiction or a lot of the the end. 
um, battle sequences just had wireframes in there. So there, I actually like watched a wireframe of the Hulk get buried by, you know, wireframe boulders at one scene and fight wireframe dogs and stuff like that. Sort of like the uh, Wolverine Origins movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, then I saw then I went and saw it in the theater and it wasn't much better. And that tells me it wasn't that much before the movie came out that I was watching the wireframes, which tells me. It wasn't a long trip from wireframes to the finished product that you saw on the screen, and it showed. Yeah. It just there was no. And the rest of that movie, that movie, there's so much of that movie, that's just sort of set in solid reality and is like a drama, you know. So then all of a sudden you and he tried to make it. I I kind of like that movie. I kind of have a soft spot for that movie because he really tried, and it was very. It was an interesting try, and it was it was interesting and enjoyable to watch. But it was also a miss on so many different levels. You know, he was like, okay, maybe we'll do some transitions here that look like a comic page and stuff. But it never really bridged that gap from being cartoony and and a real drama, you know, family drama thing. I have to watch that again. I haven't watched it since I saw that in the theater. I I, I, I rewatched it after uh, The Incredible Hulk came out. Mm-hmm. And the... What I came to realize is that this movie's... Uh, Hulk, 2003. This movie's fatal flaw, what it really comes down to is, as you watch the movie... And I'm not talking about comic book fans here. I'm talking about Joe Dumbass. Just Normie, as a right? film watcher. Yeah. The guy that knows absolutely nothing about uh, Hulk other than what's in this movie is constantly 20, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes ahead in the narrative of the narrative. So everything that you're watching as it happens. Joe Dumbass is actually 10 or 20 minutes ahead. Okay, I understand this. Let's move on to the next thing. And it's Let's the most get on fucking the frustrating thing in the world because <laughs> he's telling you stuff that you figured out already and now you're just waiting for the next the next bit. And there's so much... Um, when I say setup, I don't mean you know exposition. I mean there's so much visual setup that's on the screen that explains exactly what the conflicts are and, and, and you know what the mechanics of the story are. That when the exposition finally comes, it's like, I know, I'm not stupid, can we just move on already? And it is, uh, I mean, it's like on the one hand, I want to tell you, yeah, by all means, go ahead and give it a rewatch, it's worth it. On the other hand, I do want, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, I do want you to know that I don't know, I mean, you tend to have a different view of uh, of media anyway, but eh, I don't know, it, it's, it was very frustrating for me on the rewatch. Yeah, I haven't I haven't sat through it again because I remember it was almost three hours, and that's a, I you know I, I'm more liable to watch the 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 Ed Norton, um, Hulk because I love that one. That one I thought the CG worked really, even though the CG was cartoonish at the end. The battle at the end was the first time that I thought really that we saw a Hulk battle that was similar to something you would see in the comics and as I would visualize it. Well, I agree. And I kind of liked, you know, for Incredible Hulk, I sort of liked the 
the bravery because when you think about it, it is it is kind of a brave move it doesn't seem that way post Zack Snyder Superman perhaps right. but it was right. a brave move at the time to have your your big finale to have this much action and fighting and stuff blowing up I mean at the time you know basically film would basically they would show you as much as they thought they could afford. This really went whole hog with it, and it, I think it was something like 10 or 15 minutes of sustained fist fights. Hulk, Hulk in this, yeah. And, and that was finally. <laughs> well, and yeah, I mean, why you make a Hulk movie? <laughs> and it is, it, I mean, it is true that, you know, let's face it, nobody goes to a Hulk movie so that, you know, to listen to philosophy, but still. I'll I still take think a little it's... bit of it thrown in in here, but here and there, but it, in between the smashy, smashy, and bring, <laughs> you know, I mean, bring on the smashy, smashy. That's why you're making a Hulk movie, right? You know? Right. It's I just mean, that, Ang that, Lee that was not Hulk the thinking movie. at the time, you know. I mean, it right. was. It's just. It seems so obvious looking back at it, but it's like that was not the way movies were done, and it was so. I think kind of ballsy, and. You know, I, I'm of the opinion. I look, I could be wrong, but I'm of the opinion that if that movie came out today exactly as it is incredible hulk if that came out today i think people would actually take it a little closer to heart what do you think i i would like to hope so i don't understand what it is that people it's it's one of my favorite of the marvel movies it's like up in the it it's fighting in the top three to five of the marvel movies for me hmm. i i loved it i i i think ed norton is 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 awesome i i understand why he disappeared after this movie because he sounds like he uh, he's like bruce willis i think bruce willis is awesome too but he sounds like a colossal pain in the ass to do a movie with and ed norton was just an actor in this movie but he's one of those guys that takes over stuff and uh but to that effect the way they used color and everything about it and the way norton sort of put his influence to get a little bit of the bill bixby era in there yeah i think it worked really well and i think that they using they they use the color green so wonderfully in that movie it's all just everywhere and in it the has movie. a visual and meaning it's not just arbitrary yes. they're they mean something if you see green on screen i like that. yes it, it's a whole i mean it's not especially deep, but it's just a great it's just a great added extra thing and it's and it's fun. And the whole movie I just was enjoying myself through the in, the entire movie. And I'm usually the 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 weakest part of any Marvel movie for me almost universally is when it's time to fight the 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 boss at the end of the movie. Yeah. And in this one you know the creation of the boss or whatever was a little cheesy but the boss battle of this movie was actually what i did want to see now i want to see the hulk grabbing this guy's head and this guy grabbing the hulk's head and then both beating their head each other's heads into brick walls and folding up cars into throwable shapes and stuff like that that's what i wanted so that so that the end of the Incredible Hulk is actually like a peak <laughs> yeah. for me in a Marvel movie. So it's a rare thing. Usually Marvel movies peak for me like just before the midway point. And then I usually still enjoy them after the midway point, but they're just sort of following their trajectory that they have to follow. It is. Yeah, it can get a little paint <laughs> by numbers after a certain point. Yeah. Um, 
you know what? That's actually a really fair point. I'm like the thing is, I mean, I guess when it comes to the Marvel movies, I'm like a Phase One kind of guy. You know, I I just basically I th- and I'm I'm probably going to get hate mail for saying this, but I I, I really do think Marvel Studios as a, like as a going concern, it kind of peaked with the first Avengers movie. And after that, everything else has just been kind of meh, you know. Artistically, I think yeah, they peaked around around there. Just uh, not just artistically, but artistically and um, momentum-wise, it that was their first big build to this, and it was make it or break it. I remember I was thinking the the Avengers was one of my least anticipated Marvel movies because I was like, eh, it's just going to be a big boss battle and you know it, it'll be earned because they've done all these movies to get up to it. But you know that I'm more about the sort of storyline and and it was it worked amazingly well and I think it surprised. I mean, I remember seeing that in the theater and just watching the theater go crazy. You know, it played it played the audience one better than any other Marvel movie had before that. So yeah, I would definitely agree with that. But I think even on the downside, the, the downside of Marvel movies is still head and shoulders above what it really should be by this point. As far as quality-wise, I've never seen anything franchise-like like this. I mean, yeah, there's like James Bond that always... You know, your your mileage varies on who's James Bond and what time period or something... But James Bond movies are always given a good amount of money and, you know, they're, they're, they're held to a little higher quality. But they, you know, they, yeah, you could go 10 years before the, they reboot the new James Bond or whatever. It's not the way they pump out the, these Marvel movies and they're, that they're still even the ones that I was like, man, nah, that's not my favorite one. I've never felt like ripped off at the movies yet with that. And that's miraculous. How, you know, I mean, the, the original Chris Reeves superheroes, you can, you can watch that arc of quality to Superman four, you know, to where it was like, okay, we'll put less money and less effort into this and, and, and all that. And to Marvel's credit, how they, how they do that. I, I don't know. Well, one of the things I'll give them a lot of credit for is they've, they're working within the broader superhero genre, but then it's like they're, they're, their movies fit within kind of subgenres within that, where Captain America started off as like a war movie, and then since it's kind of become sort of like Tom, Tom Clancy's spy novels. Right, right. And you've got... Uh, the Thor movies, which have uh, become sort of very, yeah, superhero in one sense, but also sword and sorcery in the other. And um, just, you know, through it all, yeah, they're working within a superhero rubric, but they've got subgenres that they're playing into, or Guardians of the Galaxy doing kind of Star Wars light space opera. And when you think about it, I mean, it's like that is such an obvious way to go, and yet... Well, it's Marvel Comics. That's the they're doing basically like, and especially and and I mean this is nice for me. Maybe this is why it appeals more to me. Some I'm 50 years old, but it reminds me 
of when I read Marvel Comics, which was in the, you know, early from from the late 70s to the late 80s. And it reminds me not I mean, there's actual references to actual things that I remember. But at the same time, it just reminds me of the general. I think what they've succeeded in doing and being ahead of the curve in how we consume movies, they they are they've bridged this gap between a movie, a TV show and a comic book and made it just sort of their own sort of thing, which is uh, which is the Marvel movies, because they're all integrate they're They're all sort of independent of each other, but they're all completely integrated with each other as much as you want. Just sort of like the like you could read Spider-Man and not read the Avengers, but if you read both of them, they were going to cross over. And or well, if you even read either one, somebody was going to show up in in the other ones. And they they did it by embracing it rather than like trying to twist it into like Hollywood movies. They made almost their. their I could see a future where you just send Marvel a hundred dollars, and then you have you can go to the next four Marvel movies or whatever, five Marvel movies or something, you know, or 10 Marvel movies or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, in the future. Well, the, um, maybe it's just to do with, I mean, you, I mean, you, you are right that, you know, there, there is, I guess some amount of independence, but at the same time, integration, that that's going on and you know it actually does kind of make me wonder you know um disney did recently buy out 20th century fox which at least in theory should include x-men and so it does kind of make me wonder is now a good time to reboot the x-men and then if it is you know the obvious move i think would be to somehow integrate the x-men into the marvel universe but then that kind of leads into something that i mean i don't one of the things about the X-Men that has just never really worked for me, like ever, is if you think of the X-Men as basically this 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 group of people, they, they live in this in a relatively real world along the lines of like the actual real world, and people are basically rising up against them because they are so different from everybody else, then in that sense I, I'd like to think I can understand, you know, the the metaphor that I, that the X-Men is working with, you know. But whenever you start integrating the X-Men into the same universe where you've got Spider-Man and you've got the Avengers and presumably at some point the Fantastic Four, it's like, okay, so you're okay with Thor, a literal god from another dimension, running around your world and that's okay. You're totally all right with the Hulk a mindless beast savage running around your world tearing shit up and that's okay. But if somebody's born different, well that's when you got to draw the line. It's it's just one of those things that I've never really been able to get my head around that. And it's one well, of those I think what they I think that's why Magneto works so much for it because Magneto you're when, when you have Magneto you're you're able to have a a bad bad mutant so Magneto is embodies, well, you know, I mean, the, they don't hate mutants because of Magneto, but he embodies all the, the fears that people have of mutants. So you have him as sort of a, 
as sort of the foil to the X-Men. But I think the X-Men sort of work better isolated on their own. You know what I mean? Sort of like yeah. they have been. And I'm I'm up and down on the, the X-Men movies and stuff. But some of them are I really like, and I've sort of liked them being separate from Marvel, because they've sort of been their own thing that's worked, you know. So it's like okay, and they it, worked it, at a time when comic book cinema didn't work. I mean, look, it's all well and good, right. you know, in like 2014 or whenever it was that Days of Future Past came out, dude. Superhero cinema was a was a growing. And thriving enterprise at the time, but like in 2000, when the first X-Men movie came out, nobody wanted a superhero movie. Nobody. Right, but I think there's a cross, and I think there's an important crossover, and I think this is where you end up with a lot of the friction between Marvel and DC movies, mm -hmm. is you have your comic book fans, and um, and then you have your comic book fans who aren't as much comic book readers but they have specific characters that they've liked through movies or just the general media topic and i almost think of them although they're not exclusively these kinds of people but um stuff like x-men um deadpool batman sell better and even to a, a smaller extent, Superman, because I've known some Superman fans that were in this category, and it's a it's an unfair category for me to make, but I'm going to make it anyway. And that's the um, um, oh, what the hell is that? Um, what the hell is the goth store at the mall? Oh, um, Hot Topic is that Hot one? Topic. There is a hot there the 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 people who will go to Hot Topic and buy a Batman shirt. And they are they are a big and I think that was part of the um, say the the appeal of Blade. Um, they are a, a a big contingent that you add on to something where you don't they're they're not necessarily really interested in Captain America or Spider Man, you know. Right. Spider Man has a universal appeal. There's a certain kind of person that's not even a comic book reader that's a Spider-Man fan that I've known that are real, you know, they they just love the idea of it or whatever. They love Spider-Man shirts and they go to all the movies. They're not necessarily reading the comic book, so. And I think the X-Men appeal to that, that group and it, that's why the X-Men movies have sort of worked in their own thing. We've had a little crossover with Deadpool but Deadpool is almost like a parody element, you know, so you can throw him into there. And he has lots of precedent for being thrown in with the X-Men. So, Well, what I've always said is that Deadpool is the comic book for people who don't like comic books. And, you know, like how fair or accurate or true is that really? I don't know. But I've I enjoyed known... the Deadpool movie. I've never really enjoyed a Deadpool comic or not not enjoyed a Deadpool comic, but I don't take. Deadpool Deadpool comics are like read it in five minutes and forget about it because it's just sort of like a mad magazine parody or something you know I don't take it seriously but um I'm more I, I'd be more interested in bringing in the, the Fantastic Four end of stuff to the I think the Fantastic Four would would meld beautifully into the Marvel Universe they might have. They'd have to do a little, you know, futzing around to to where have they been so far or whatever. 
but what I, I think they would, you know, character-wise and stuff, they would be a perfect Marvel addition. They were, and when I was reading comics, you know, they were one of the, they were one of the pillars. So, and I, I can't say much because I have avoid the only Fantastic Four movie I ever saw was the, the Corman one <laughs> that never got released. Which I thought was was pretty okay for what it was. It was pretty fun for what it was. It was not good, but um, I just haven't had the heart to watch any of the other Fantastic Four movies that they've made because they haven't looked at all like Fantastic Four to me. They've looked at like people trying to figure out a way to change the to make them more palatable or something, and they're already palatable to me as they are. So. I I I have a lot more. Uh, just like I haven't watched the the two Spider-Man movies before the Marvel Spider-Man, I was not interested in in them at all. They did not seem to have anything stylistically or feel-wise that were was gonna appeal to me. Although I have to check them out sometime because the second one has Rochester in it. Well, I like uh, I like those movies from the standpoint of um, they they were not trying to be the Lee Romita uh, Spider-Man, right. which I, I like the Lee Romita Spider-Man. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from that, but I mean, Sam Raimi had already kind of uh, you know covered that covered that yeah. territory, and to do it again, I would have thought. I mean, bad enough you're rebooting so soon anyway, but now right. you're basically copying the other guy's move, and so you know like. Why? And so those new movies, number one, they're a little bit more based on uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which I'm perfectly okay with. But the other thing was, I really dig the score to Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, I know that you guys, you you and Scott, I've gotten the idea that you guys have a kind of low opinion of uh, Hans Zimmer as a composer, but his work, at least on Spider-Man... I loved it. I thought it turned out great. And so, you know, even if, you know, you're not necessarily. I, I don't f- find him subtle at all. But then again, I don't think he's universally bad because I was prepared to ha- I was really pissed off. I don't know if Vangelis is even alive, but when they did the new Blade Runner, I was like, why did they get Hans Zimmer to, you know, well, who else is going to be heavy handed and stuff. And. Um, I'm rewatching it right now, and I really like his soundtrack for that. Um, I just think he's kind of limited in in his palette <laughs> yeah. a lot of times, and uh, and I'm I'm also an old you know shake your fist at the sky. I like the John Williams school of striking a score with right melody. To- with melody and with themes i mean hans zimmer has themes but they're like the they're almost like they come with his his work whereas whereas when you're when you're scoring like john williams style you're 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 timing stuff to the to the act you know to like somebody's hand will will go you know when their hand moves or something or you'll 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 bring everything to a screeching halt for a facial expression or something something like that, and then you have themes for characters and themes for thematic elements of the movie that come up at appropriate times and mix in with other ones when they're mixing in on the screen. And 
But I also realized that that is an expensive, time-consuming um, way of, of doing a soundtrack, too, that uh, is not possible for a lot of movies. It certainly is when you're doing a Blade Runner remake and spending a ton of money on it, though. <laughs> well, and I, I, I get that. It's just the thing about the um, uh, uh, Hans Zimmer's Spider-Man stuff is... Like the thing about it that, that just kind of works for me is that his hero theme is very, you know, uh, fanfare for the common man uh-huh. type of type of sound. Which, when you think about it, that is a kind of original idea for a superhero score. I do like the idea of Spider-Man. Well, whatever. Anyway, we could probably go around all night on that one. But you know, it's just uh, I don't know. I'm in the long term. I'm of the opinion that there really should not have been a reboot of of Spider-Man. I mean, the you, people can say whatever they want about how derivative Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3 were of Superman 1, 2, and 3, and I think there's probably something to that. So maybe we did dodge a bullet by not getting Spider-Man 4, but right at, at the end of the day, it... I just... I, it, there's There was a lot of dramatic potential to continue to continuing a story. I think a lot of people are kind of fed up with the idea of a trilogy. Like everything's got to be a fucking trilogy nowadays. And it's just, just no. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's going to change. I think, you know, I think I, you know, I think we're in such a, a time of flux where I think pretty soon in the future, I was sitting down and I was watching, um, Wormwood. And it was a six-part documentary on um, Netflix, mm-hmm. and it's uh, and the guy's name always uh, uh, evades me, but he's he's just a fantastic documentary filmmaker. He 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 busted out big time back in the '70s with Gates of Heaven, which was about a pet cemetery, and uh, um, he did uh, the Fog of War was a, a recent one that and I think he won an Oscar for the fog of war and um, but this was a six part documentary mixed in with drama something he never would have been able to do a, as a movie you know and you could have probably done that as a two hour documentary but he really got to flesh out the details of the the story in it and uh as I was watching that, I was just like, yeah, we're going into a new phase. Whereas, you know, going to the movies is probably going to be something when you go to the movies, you're probably going to be going there more for something like a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie. And in some ways, that's kind of sad. But in other ways, we're sort of working to the where how you consume your media is determined by what me- what kind of media you're watching and what plays to its advantages. So seeing you 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 know it's more advantageous for you to watch Star Wars the new Star Wars movie out on a, on a movie screen because a it's one of those communal experiences where all the nerds are you know you're going to hear people in the audience reacting to it. And it's it's going to be for the more tentpole stuff where you want to see a big screen, loud music, you know, 3D or IMAX or or whatever. And um, 
if it's a movie that's a character drama or an artsy movie, you might be watching it on Netflix from now on or something maybe a little more risky. But there might be there seems to be a lot more of that stuff. Netflix, they're making South Park was making fun of Netflix for approving everything. And they were making fun of it for that Will Smith movie, uh, Bright, was it? Or yeah, I know, I, I know which one you're talking about. You know, I forget the name, but yeah. And that oh, it was so terrible, and it got greenlit. Well, a lot of people watched it, so it got greenlit. And it's, and and the fact of the matter is, is if Netflix is greenlighting a million things, and half of that stuff is crap, and half of it's really good, the way Netflix presents it, you can just avoid all the crap. And well, watch I mean, it, it does kind of make stuff. you think, you know, I mean, that does – how is that any different from, from Hollywood regularly except the difference between, you know, movie theaters and Netflix is, hey, you know what? With Netflix, I don't have to leave home, so I don't have to leave no, home and, to avoid the crap. And, and, and everybody has a, you know, decent-sized to almost theater-sized screen at home with probably equal sound volume – attached to it you know they they have a dolby a lot of people have a dolby 5.1 you know sound separation system in their living room so you're not losing that you can turn off the lights in your living room and get involved in something and uh and it's not the the sacrifice that it once was where you were looking at a little tv screen that was low way lower quality than what you would be, see in a movie with half of the picture cut off to fit the the aspect ratio. Oh, cripes, yeah. Now, you know, now normal normal view, you can say, uh, it used to be if I said aspect ratio, people would be just like, what the hell are you talking about? It's a, it was a filmmaking term. And now everybody has an aspect ratio setting on their TV, you know? Yeah. So it's 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 just a, a that's one battle i am not I, I do not miss you know like the the whole widescreen advocacy movement like that was a big thing like when was that was i guess i was like 2001 and stuff like basically from like the late 90s up to like the early 2000s people would duke it out about that online about what widescreen well, widescreen yeah, on tv and, here well and basically that you know there's there is widescreen, I guess, in a general sense, but then there's like movies that Letter, are actually Letterbox. shot truly widescreen, like like anamorphic, like scope widescreen. Yeah. You know? And you know the differences between cropped widescreen versus true blue widescreen, and like you know the battles and stuff that people would have. And you know there were times when it did kind of come off like sort of dick swinging pageants. Look how much I know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they were still making. They were still right. And and I guess the point is that's just that's not uh, a battle I, I miss at all. I mean, you talk about. I I honestly never thought that the public would. And I guess the public didn't actually really have a choice. I mean, widescreen TV sort of became the de facto standard, didn't it? Yeah, and and it play and and you know most TVs nowadays. <coughs> We'll play that. You know, you can get a, a Blu-ray now that's that's letterboxed into. Say you wanted to watch uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world, which was in, I believe, like Cinemascope. You know, it was in the seventy millimeter that like went 
It was oh, yeah. extra wide and went to the edge of your peripheral vision. And so they could crop that off and you could take your TV and, you know, and set it so it goes to the edges of your TV. And it might put a little black on the top or the bottom or whatever. So you don't like, you know, I mean, pan and scan. I mean, in the old days, basically a TV was is so like if people were watching stuff now on just an old TV, they would just be like, this looks terrible. It looks like a bad YouTube video because it was such low quality. And if you and if you put something into a, a letterbox so you could which sometimes they would do on TV for a like real classy movie. But. I think Schindler's List was aired uncensored, and I th- and as I recall, wasn't it aired in widescreen when it was on? Which, which movie? Schindler's List. Oh yeah, I, that would totally be the kind of movie that they would do with that uncut and 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 letterboxed and stuff, so you could see everything, so you could see all the great, you know, cinematography and stuff. But when you letterboxed it on an old TV screen you're cutting out half the resolution because you're cutting out the top and the bottom. So you would see more stuff, but it would all be, it would be a lower resolution image of it. You know, whereas every, everything you look at on your TV today is like a computer screen. It's like a lit, um, um, a backlit photo or something, you know, it's, it's a a beautiful high definition picture. Yeah. That's its own unnatural thing. It was actually a couple of weeks ago. You know, speaking of aspect ratios and stuff, I got in a, uh, I don't even know how else to describe it except uh, argument with some dumb son of a bitch on um, this uh, uh, Tolkien Facebook page of which I'm a, uh, of which I'm a member. And basically I was trying, I thought, to, you know, educate the guys like, look, it's all, first off, I can't believe people are even still debating like, should I watch Lord of the Rings, like the trilogy Lord of the Rings in uh, 4.3, or should I watch it in, in widescreen? And that's, uh, and that's, uh, those movies, it, honestly, it doesn't really matter in some ways which one of those you watch because it was shot in Super 35. Right. And so, you know, with the 4.3 version, what, you lose a little bit on the sides, but you're seeing a little bit more on the top. Whereas with the widescreen version, you're losing a little bit on the top, but you're seeing a little bit more on the sides. And so it's really six of one, half dozen of the other. You're not really right. losing much of anything either way. And I was trying to explain that to this guy. And he's like, no, fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, look, I don't have all day long to sit around talking to somebody and trying to. Anyway, no, it's just that the, I. <laughs> Again, another one of those battles I, I do not miss at all. But, you know, it is. It, the the breathtaking degree of ignorance that exists even among fans of you know certain certain properties or or people who fancy themselves uh cinephiles it's don't maybe maybe they don't know as much as they think they do you mm-hmm. know yeah they worry me <laughs> <laughs> i'm 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 actually really worried because next month uh, they're they're t- they been, they toured it around last year and they're touring it around again this year. They did a 4K restoration of uh, Suspiria by Dario Dario Argento, mm-hmm. and so they, they they've made some really beautiful prints of it. And then they'll put a, they'll send a print around to Art House Theater. So it's coming here to Rochester. So definitely planning on going to see that. The problem with that is it attracts. There's this whole new 
um, breed of cinephiles that are half cinephiles and half like MST3K viewers, mm-hmm. except unlike MST3K viewers, they're definitely tipping more towards the know-it-all hipster end. So I'm afraid that I'm going to go to this awesome movie that I want to go and just bathe in the beautifulness of this wonderfully made movie that is an Italian horror movie from this, you know, early 70s. So it's got some beautiful, crazy, cheesy music and, you know, over the top cinematography. I know there's going to be people laughing and commenting all the way through it and it's going to drive me nuts. I'm going to have to like I'm I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that the the people there that go there will sit silently and enjoy the movie, but I I'm I'm very afraid that that's that's what's going to happen because that's sort of the modern thing now. Well, I I kind of wonder and it's if, an old movie, you know. Well, I, I wonder if if part of that mentality is why <clears throat> Paramount uh, went back and they didn't just remaster Star Trek the original series, but for their remastering job, they rejiggered. Why well, say rejiggered? No, they didn't rejigger. They actually wholesale created uh, new opening credits. They wholesale created new effect shots with uh, CGI ships and planets and all the uh, you know all this other stuff. And it was stylistically similar to right. what the original series had done. Right. They didn't George Lucas it. They just sort of made it look better. Better, yeah. But it, it didn't Up change the substance of what was there. and Or the style of it, yeah. And, you know, I I was originally a, a kind of a... At least to start with, having not seen anything, I was kind of like a vocal critic uh, of that sort of a thing because, you know, I mean, I realize that we're talking about a 1960s-era TV show, and so we just kind of need to keep that in mind. But even on that basis, you know, there were a lot of technical achievements that those those episodes had under had under their uh, under their belt, you know. And to me, it seemed kind of wrong to to just act like that never happened. But the right to to feel that you ha- that it has to be improved in order for people to want to watch it or for it to be up to the standards of today and stuff. Yeah. But apparently their approach is, look, this is for people who just want to watch it. If you want the original episodes, those are out there too. We're not taking those away. And I thought, you know what? Good on you. Because, you know, um, when I watch something like, um, I think probably my favorite original series episode is probably going to be where no man has gone before. Okay. And, And, you know, you go back and watch that, and yeah, the the matte painting in the original version looks a little cheesy, perhaps. But you know, you know, damn it, there's a there's an honesty to that matte painting that no amount of CGI can ever hope to compete with. But at the same time, you'd kind of have to be stupid to argue the the CGI version doesn't have some technical improvement or whoozy whatses to offer that. Makes it well, they also base it directly. They strike it sort of directly off the mat. You know, they just sort of bring the mat to life, and they can t- they keep the feel of it. Yeah. Sometimes they'll make it look. A, they'll they'll take a little more a little license on it and do something to make it look more realistic. But they still it 
they they still kept you know the technology the same you know they didn't make it so it's like oh let's make sure that all this you know let's redo all the computer screens and put some you know more appropriate computer stuff going on on there they they kept that as it was they just cleaned it up basically and and uh I remember when they were doing that and they would put up videos. I was subscribed to like a YouTube channel where the special effects crew would be just like, okay, we're working on a shot from this, this show and stuff. And they would show you the old, the old shot next to what they were working on. Mm -hmm. And you could see how they were trying to just basically take that take the edges off and take the stuff that looked printed off it and make it not look optically printed mm -hmm. but they weren't going to they they weren't going to make the enterprise look anything else but that then it actually looked then only that it's just you know got a wireframe model of it now instead of an original model right and uh, i I was I was resistant to it, but I like watching those episodes. They, the, I, it, it, there's a, the stuff in it is interesting enough for me to go like, oh, I, I like what they did, and and then I always feel good about it because I go like, that was very tasteful. <laughs> they did that very tastefully, and and they did not they did not mess up, you know, they did not distract me away from, you know, this the the, the stuff that's good on this. So. But that's a rare, that's, that's a rare, uh, you know, thing. It's, it's the, it's, it's, that's really what George Lucas should have done with his, with his, you know, fixed up editions. That's, I disagree. I, I completely disagree. He shouldn't have, he should have just re-released them. Go ahead, remaster them, you know, whatever, but don't change stuff. Don't. They were fine just the way they were. Uh, look, well, that's what I mean. I think he should have, if if he was going to do the 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 remastered edition, then then fix so you know fix that wobble. You go ahead and fix that wobble underneath the the land speeder, you know that was obviously colored in with a magic marker, you know. I mean stuff like that, and 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 make that thing that looks like an obvious puppet a little less obviously a puppet, and. Just just subtle things. I think he did that more with the Empire Strikes Back one, where it's like, okay, the the engines of the look diff, look a little fire more fiery and stuff like that. Just su subtle tweaks, you know. Uh, but leave all the elements in there, you know. But he couldn't he couldn't do it. He was he was he was interested in moving CGI forward at that point more than he was interested in keeping. You know, he was pulling the George Lucas pulled a lot of fast ones. God bless him, but he pulled a lot of fast ones where it's like, ah, yes, you know, I'm, I'm reimagining, you know, the Star Wars movies or whatever. But he was really just like eager to to use his CGI toys and see what he could do with them. You know, well, the, was, everything the in those editions was not meant to the, to aid to to serve Star Wars. Some of it was done to show off what he could do, you know? Yeah. Well, what I heard, I have no idea how true this is, but what I heard was that 
his original idea was to re uh, just to re-release Star Wars '77, just the first movie, and basically pick out you know three or four shots, primarily from the Death Star battle at the end, and basically add in a couple of extra you know X wings or maybe have um, you know a couple of new shots you know that don't really detract from anything, but you'd kind of need to be a little eagle-eyed in order to really notice. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you pay close attention, you know what, and you, and you kind of need to know where to, where to find all this bullshit, but it's out there on the internet. If you're, if anyone's interested, Oh yeah. basically somebody pulled him aside and said, look, what we have here is a kind of a rare marketing opportunity and a rare R and D opportunity. Mm-hmm. You're making mm-hmm. these prequels, and you know that it's going to have X, Y, and Z in it, and we need to perfect this technology. Mm-hmm. And we need to recoup as much of this investment as we possibly can. Why not gussy up all of the movies and re-release all three of them, and then we can uh, basically get from from the same basic amount of investment get more money out of it you know and so right we're gonna you, spend you, hmm? you'll almost have three new products too right from that and he'd be and he would be it would be um fine-tuning technology and hyping up the the franchise for you know the new movie yeah and so what should have been one movie with five or six if you want to call it improved five or six improved shots and it became an entire trilogy that I think kind of got turned into a little bit of a hash. And I... Look, there's nothing I can say about this whole original trilogy thing that hasn't been said by zillions of other people. It's, prob- like, it's so problematic to me that like I'm not even going to bother watching like anything after the remastered... Like, I've, I finally found they, they have the um, despecialized editions... Yeah, by Harmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By Harmy, and that's basically what I will watch because those are what I watched in the theater. When I watch those, it feels completely different than the modern. You know, during that whole '90s era, I was buying them on on DVD. You know, and mm. uh, and watching. And when I would watch Star Wars, I would watch the. And then I finally got the D- the double DVD that has the the uncut quote-unquote uncut but there there's almost nothing after a certain point in the vhs releases that the hasn't been like color retimed and and their their attempts to make it better were sort of like in the early days they were trying to make it better but they were making it better so you could watch it on your home tv off of VHS and have it look decent. Right. Which is not the same, like the same colors that look decent on your TV through a VHS aren't the same colors that necessarily look decent in a movie theater. So that became what Star Wars looked like, uh, you know, color timing wise and all of that. And then when you started getting DVDs, they started going haywire on, okay, we can redo all this and that stuff. And I've seen lots of videos on people who are, you know, video effects experts or work in the industry 
who are looking at all, you know, comparing all the Star Wars releases and just going, who did the color timing on this? It's horrifying. You know, they're showing, you know, like, look right here. This should be white right here. This is blue, (laughs) you know. So so there was kind of a hack job done on a lot of them. And then they and every time you change it after that, you're changing the one that you've altered before it. And it becomes a game of uh, Chinese telephone or what, you know, or, <laughs> or whatever. And so what what you watch that looks like that that's a Star Wars movie on a disc now is even if it's on the Blu-ray is nothing like it looked in the theater. And it's so striking when you watch the Harmy editions, at least to me. You know, the, the, the experience of watching them is so and, and, you know, with just so subtle differences, it's completely different. And it's and maybe that's because I used to sit in the theater and watch them over and over again when I was a kid. So that is what. But there's, you know, all those changes add up to a um a, a change in the way it looks and the rhythm of it and everything that that comes back when you see those i i can't recommend the the despecialized versions of of star wars which is funny which was people using state-of-the-art digital to, <laughs> to, to undo state-of-the-art state of the <laughs> well you know you and i talked about uh the team negative one uh star wars and honestly, that really is my go-to. If I want to watch the original Star Wars, that's where I'm going to yes. go. And yes. I've there, got that taking up 40 gigs on my hard drive right now. <laughs> and you know what? Yeah, it's taken up about that much space on mine, but you know what? Hell with it. I mean, I'll... Oh, no, that's fine. With I will sacrifice 40 gigs of hard drive to see Star Wars... And like a the print, film, like a real gra- print of Star Wars, you know? Yes, yeah, see the film grain on it and see the way it looked. And the cigarette and, burn on it and all yep, that, like in the yep. upper right and all that. And, I mean, there's... It really, I mean, it sounds so nerdy and cinephile you know, like Quentin Tarantino having a pretentious conversation about it. But in the end, it really does make a difference you know it really it it really is a different viewing experience yeah i i'm i'm living for the day that i finally get my hands on i've got a really good older projector but like a a, somebody has like a really powerful modern projector and projecting that you know like wall size it'll looks so beautiful yeah and like the you know the thing about it is i mean the i I can't really base this on anything okay i can't sit here and tell you that you know i've got some kind of secret insider information or anything like that because i don't but i wouldn't be a bit surprised if lucas had some kind of a clause or something like that put into the deal with disney whereby they can't yeah, they seem to have no interest in it, it yeah. seems. And, like, you know, the thing is, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess ultimately, you know, we're going we're gonna to put that to the test because, again, they did just buy 20th Century Fox. Well, 20th Century Fox owns the distribution, uh, uh, the distribution rights to Star Wars. And so 
even if Disney wanted to, they wouldn't have been able to re-release those movies anyway. But now that they own basically uh, all of 20th Century Fox's assets, including the distribution rights to Star Wars, literally the only thing between between them and re-releasing Star Wars is air and opportunity. Unless Lucas put well, in... Hmm? Well, here's the thing is... I don't know if I don't know if it would be a big deal if the, it, to a lot of people. I, I think a lot of people would. I don't think it would be a huge thing at this point. To me, I almost look at the whole like, will there ever be a release of it in the original state? Is almost academic because we have it. <laughs> I mean, really, we those do, but... specialized editions are are. And I've and like Empire and Jedi, I've only downloaded the ones that I think are they're like eight gigs a piece. But you can get ones that are forty or fifty gigs, you know, that have that are, just have all the information crammed in there for for high resolution, as high a resolution of a projection as you want to do. And <clears throat> so. I, you know, why do I, I just, I guess I just don't care if it's ever officially done. As a matter of fact, I sort of think that the, 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 the people who all, all the fans and that got together and, and granted they were industry professionals who were doing, just sort of doing it as a labor of love. So they had, um, all this equipment at their hands to do it, but they did it as a labor of love. And they probably did a better job than Disney would do if they just did it. You know what I mean? It would be it wouldn't be approached with the same sort of like renegade spirit and like and also like they had no deadlines doing it when they when they were doing their the Harmy versions of it. So they could sit there and nitpick it down to as as nitpicky as they wanted to get, you know. And not have to have anybody breathing down their neck saying, "Look, we got to have this done and designed and put out by this date." So, it's there, and and you can just go download it for free. And it's in that weird gray legal area where they're not really going after it. I imagine they would go after it if you like set up at a con and were selling copies of it for thirty bucks or whatever. But yeah, that's yeah, that would be well, a no no. But and, and I get where you're coming from. I even kind of agree, but the. To me, what it really comes down to is this, especially for the first Star Wars movie, is there's the way that Star Wars looked, which even for its time, you know, it was very pioneering. You know, a movie hadn't really looked quite that way before. You know, for as shoestring a budget as Star Wars had to work with, it still looked amazing. Yeah, they took the ideas of Flash Gordon and comic books and... And combine them with like spaceship-wise, like World War II realism, and you know, ma- made it realistic. You know, nothing had been, nobody had even tried to do that before. You know, oh, yeah. but there's also the way that uh, Star Wars sounded, and there were three major soundtracks for Star Wars when it was released in 1977. The most common of which was the uh, uh, mono soundtrack, which is actually Ben Burt's uh, favorite version of the uh, the the soundtrack. That's the one that he he invested the most uh, uh, time and uh, labor into, because that's the one that most people were gonna hear. And right. 
that soundtrack, that mono edition of uh, of uh, Star Wars, it's never it's never really been uh, released in any kind of format. It was e- either you've heard it in in theaters in 1977, or you just haven't heard it, and it's that simple. Then there was also a, a stereo uh, version, a Dolby stereo uh, sound mix. And then finally they had what they called Split Surround. None of those soundtracks have ever been released on home video. And at least in theory, the only person who can, or the only entity that can do it at this point is is Disney. And so, yeah, you know, you can get the movie and what it looked like and everything back in 1977, but what it sounded like, only Disney can give us that. And... The odds of, I mean, ultimately, that's what I really want. I mean, I'm maybe it's just being too. How hard would it be to have where you 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 select a, you know it's a, a selected option on your your Blu-ray, you know, mono soundtrack. Yeah. Boop, and it plays it. That's that's how a Blu-ray works now. There's separate tracks anyway. Well, and you that's what they did with uh, when they remastered uh, Jaws. There was like this anniversary edition that they released that had. This, you know, super macked out 5.1 surround sound remastered super duper whatever on there, which I've never bothered listening to. But then they also had the original mono version. Right. Which is well, my go-to uh, edition. That's yeah. what I always listen to. And same thing. Well, there was a, there's a lot of like Beatles music and stuff like that, that the, the optimum version you want to get is the mono version because they were recorded at that time period to a certain time <laughs> <coughs> period in in like beat it like at, at a certain point in rock music they started mixing stuff primarily for stereo but there was that time period where most people had mono and a few people had stereo so you made the stereo mix and stuff but it was experimental and usually like a lot of times stereo mixes of Beatles songs are really annoying because all the vocals will be shoved over on the right side and instruments will be on the left side and if you have don't have the best speaker set up or something you might lose something whereas the monos you hear every everything and you hear where it was supposed to be yeah definitively when they were listening to it and what people were supposed to listen to so yeah it's the same with there's probably a whole bunch of movies in that time period that sound better as a mono mix but nobody's going to care but star wars you know i mean ben burt put a lot of extra i mean arguably ben burt john williams and marsha lucas were the three most important things to star wars success other than george lucas having the idea and getting it going because apparently before you know marsha i i can't remember what her, this was before they were married but before her edit of Star Wars, people were getting ready to jump ship. <laughs> you know, people were getting getting ready to write that era of their career off because it had a really bad, clunky edit, and she, you know, completely revamped every, you know the whole way it was presented. And then when you layer John Williams' music on top of that, and then when you put Ben Burtt's sound design. All of a sudden, you know, you it things start firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and despite you know, George Lucas. Yeah, and like the thing is, I mean, 
when you come right down to it, you know, at its best, film is supposed to be kind of a team sport. And so, you know, I, maybe the real failing of the prequels was that George Lucas just bit off more than he could chew. And I don't know. I mean, there's... Again, well, I mean, I would not of, be... I, I mean, I think George Lucas at that point in his life was just over... Filmmaking is a is no job for a man. <laughs> it's a terrible... Making films is a terrible thing. The act of making a film most of the time is a terrible, grueling thing. And I think George Lucas was at that point in his life where he was over it. So he wanted to keep it on a soundstage. I think a lot of people, you know, the red letter media stuff is very funny. And they, they, they love their Star Wars, but they're ruthless on it. But I think they were barking up the right tree when they were just like, George Lucas wanted to sit in front of a monitor with his with his coffee. He did not want a replay of you know when they went to tunisia and where they went to film hoth and you know have all these like environmental disasters cost them millions of dollars and wipe out their sets and stuff like you know all that drama so well he is a very like post-production editing room kind of kind of he's not a very yeah he's not a very emotional filmmaker no he 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 you know i think his emotional peak as a filmmaker was american graffiti and that mm. that really like but even that is more to like touches on nostalgia all he had to do was just yeah. remember you know and well he had a great cast for it too the cast was really talented and fun to watch and it had a a good script but you know he's he i uh, he's a technical guy and he's a visual guy yeah. and uh those and uh, you know emo- emotional you can see in his interviews he does not he's not an animated person he's he's a he's uh inwardly directed nerd type of tech guy and uh it, it, it and that is not the you know there's filmmakers like that but that's not the ideal filmmaker the ideal filmmakers got a little bit of a aggressive madman type a personality to them or is very like super responsive to the cast and crew and you know on their artistic and emotional needs throughout the whole movie you know like maybe a robert altman type and george lucas is just not that guy so he's got to surround himself with stuff like that in order for it to to really really work and that's why Star Wars really, really worked, and all three of the original trilogies really, really, really worked because they were collaborative efforts, and you know, Empire and and Jedi even more so with having you know him just be executive producer. I think they should just bring him in to dis to Disney Star Wars movies as you know, like second executive producer. And put him in charge of like the visual aspect of it. Put it, put it, make him a visual, you know, in charge of the visual aspect of Star Wars. And I think, you know, you might think, uh, you know, that would be kind of rude because he's George Lucas. And I think he would love it. I think he would love having a limited, you know, here's your, here's your, your borders that you work within and, and we're going to just have you focused on the stuff you love to do <laughs> and and set him loose and have him, 
you know, looking at ships and going, this should look more like a B-1 bomber, you know, or something like that. Or, you know, in this scene, when these ships are flying, if one of them just clips its wings onto this and stuff, and that's where his genius lies. Mm -hmm. Like, his his actual, like, you know, I mean, I don't want to underplay that he did pull together the Star Wars movies, create them, and and then, like, create all the sort of and that's another thing about Star Wars is like the after a while with George Lucas, you could tell the movies were secondary. <laughs> he was trying to build his own Disney that was a more, you know, maybe more in the adult realm, but somewhere skirting the adult world in Spielberg and Disney, you know, where it's like, OK, we have Lucasfilm, we have LucasArts doing video games we have the educational branch. We got, you know, Industrial Lights and Magic. And he was building, and that was where it seemed his interest lied in in building that infrastructure and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, CGI. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people don't know, but George Lucas has always been CGI. <laughs> well, uh, I guess to to you know finally round off the the CGI you know thing, one of the things that I've I honestly don't think a lot of people uh, know is in 1978, not 1988, not 1998, 1978, George Lucas was uh, futzing around with. Um, uh, CGI and doing demos and stuff, and I've seen some of these uh, 1978 era demos, and they definitely look um, fairly primitive. You know, things like uh, I mean, like technical stuff. You know, like motion blurring and right. uh, kind of more like real realistic type uh, types of physics and all the stuff that you get for free when you when you uh, do model work. Right. But the they definitely look like X-Wings. They definitely look like TIE Fighters. They're definitely swooping around in ways that, uh, at least in Star Wars, from like the original Star Wars, just could never do with uh, the model uh, effects and techniques and whatnot that they were doing back then. And apparently the reason that it, it was never really... Um, developed beyond that point is is just because it wasn't it, it was cost prohibitive to yeah. to do any kind of cgi type stuff so but you know this is something that he's wanted i mean the process for just that little wireframe of the trench run in star wars yeah was, apparently that that was very expensive to do when when i was in college and just out of well, well when i was in college um, you could do CGI and there were kids, at, but you had to like, you had to be in the top percentile of the animation of like a, have a, your major B animation to get to the CGI lab that we had, which was two computers that, you know, so two people could be making their CGI film. The thing about it was you went in there and you designed and, you know, put together your CGI in a wireframe on the computer. And then you basically had to aim a camera at a special camera mm -hmm. that would, would record only part of the film along. And, and, you know, in those days on a, on a TV screen, you would have line vertical horizontal lines. 
so it was recording the horizontal lines and you would literally set up your camera and walk away for a month or two as it rendered yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and painstakingly just did a little part of the lot, you know, a little part of the line would show up and it would expose part of the frame. And then you walked away and then you came back in a month and you, you would have to see <laughs> what you got and, you can sort it of see it developing. It might not render the way you wanted it to, guys. Maybe so. not, and you can't tell just by watching it render because it's just a, a static image. It's going so slow. It's not even a static image. It's literally just part of one of the horizontal lines at any given time. And um, then when I got out of school, one of my friends got one of the first video toasters where you could do the same thing with one of those at home. But you would still have to walk away for months while it rendered. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, and that—that's when people started doing CGI. And even in movies and stuff, what they would do is they would just make a farm of like 500 <laughs> video toasters in order to be able to do anything with any kind of any kind of speed. You know, we. When we first used a video toaster, he knew I was, my friend wasn't a film student, but he was a techie sort of guy, but he knew I was a film student. So he brought me over to play with it the first day. And so the first thing is, you know, there's like out of the box, like here's a car, just a wireframe of a car and a baseball, you know, just some simple things at a tree. And so we set up some stuff and, you know, the baseball hits the car and then it spins into Godzilla and Godzilla walks away with it and, <laughs> and, and did a little animation like that. And then we're playing it in the wireframe going, oh, that's funny. OK, let's render it. And then it was a month <laughs> and it was the dumbest, like four seconds of animation ever. You know, it was just garbagey you know simple wire wireframes with a flat color over them and it took a month to to do and meanwhile like todd rundgren's got like 400 of them in his apartment just like probably heating the place with them <laughs> to make music videos and stuff like that you know yeah probably so so you know i mean nowadays the stuff out of the box that people have at home i've been watching and I'm, you know, I'm years behind in discovering this guy, but his name's Captain Disillusion, and he's on uh, a YouTube channel, and he's basically an effects guy who goes through and debunks, you know, all the videos and shows how what kind of effects they use to accomplish this UFO or or stunt that seems impossible and stuff. And, you know, he's he's using just he'll recreate the stuff using just stuff on his laptop, you know. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much what I had for uh, uh, the CGI discussion. You got any uh, parting shots you want to throw out there before we call it a night? No, I, um, I not really. I guess, um, you know, it's uh, it's in it's in progress in the next in in the next 10 years we're really going to see I don't think we'll ever see the end of the uncanny valley but we'll see an end of 90% of the uncanny valley there'll always be people who do stuff half-assed or you know too fast or too cheap and you'll get some uncanny valley but those days are are go we're getting close we're getting closer to the day where like you know w- virtual reality cg will rival 
you know, we're, we're getting to the, the point soon enough where instead of, oh, let's work off a wireframe, they're working on like an atomic level, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we have, a, we, 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 we have, you know, every CGI character you have, if, if they're doing a standard enough job with it, the bone density, you know, that that character will have a, a unique skeleton to any other character. It'll be their skeleton will be built up from a genetic model rather than. And that's when things are going to get really fun. <laughs> and sexy. Yeah, well, yeah, I was about to say the same thing, but. Maybe that's more of a thing for eat it and beat it. So uh, speaking of which, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? You can find me at twotruefreaks.com, where I live, and uh, chocked full of, um, and uh, of course this is going to come out way in the future, but... Um, no, not really. We're um, You and I are recording this like a week or two. Oh. Uh, basically, uh, for those of you who are listening now, Shithole countries is still part of the uh, news cycle, so if that helps you date it, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, and you can do that nowadays because stuff drops out of the cycle so fast that you can micro, you know, they'll they'll be able to know within a week of when the show in the in in future history Mm -hmm. by noting any anything in the news these days. But um, oh, good. Well, then, then then. this will be coming out right in I'm I'm very proud of it. I'm in I'm actually I'm going right back to editing. I'm editing three podcasts simultaneously right now, just sort of doing one for a while and then going to another I have a fourth on the block, but I've got three just one of them's going up tonight and then in the next couple weeks there's just going to be th- a nice run of three Star Wars related podcasts. Mhm coming out and that i'm really proud of they're they're sounding really good i and finally i got to talk and i've i've kept my mouth shut online for the most part about about the last jedi and i've been waiting and waiting and waiting to get together with scott gardner and find out what what he thought what he thought about it finally and and have our discussion on it and we just had that the other night so i'm i'm editing that that should be that should be coming out as of we're recording the next Monday, and I'm really looking forward to that. That was a that that I think people that that are fans of Scott and I talking are going to be uh, really into that show. We had a we had a riot. <laughs> well, and like the thing was, I mean, I didn't want to necessarily give away the store on that one, but I was kind of I was a little curious, like if you were going to mention that. Uh, you know, the last Jedi thing, because I mean, it is kind of a, a, a two, two true freaks institution for you guys to get together and gab, uh, not just about Star Wars, no but way. especially Star Wars movies. There's no way with a new Star Wars movie, love it, hate it, loathe it, you know, completely want to sleep with it, whatever happens, there's just no way at some point Scott and I aren't going to get together and have to talk about it. It's it's just, unless there's some sort of like you know electromagnetic pulse that takes out the the whole communication system and uh it might take sooner or later because as it is yeah you know it's funny because both of us talk about like ah we might not get to see the star wars movie as soon as opening day as possible but we always do see it within a couple days of 
that. And then it, then then it just becomes a matter of getting our timing together when we can record together. But um, all the planets aligned and uh, and we got together and it was and it was in the afternoon. So I know speaking for myself, I was wide awake and <laughs> chipper. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, wasn't coming out of a double shift of work, which is often how I do podcasts. So it was, it was a lot of fun, and I think we surprised each other with a lot of our our thoughts about the movie, which is all I'm going to say right now. I know, I know, I know. Scott surprised me with a lot of things. There were a lot of things that I knew that that we were going to have common points on, and there were a lot of things that I thought. We weren't, and it was very interesting how that all played out. Hmm. Well, uh, since we're on the subject of Star Wars movies, uh, just allow me to be another in the in the chorus of voices that is reminding you that, as far as I know, you and Scott have never talked about Episode Three. So, you may we have it. I didn't. I I'm. I, I'm gonna have to go back and look over that because I I couldn't tell you if we did. I I want to say that we did. Well, but, if you did, I never I never saw that episode. Or, or, well, I can like usually I can I can like go through my memory banks and pick up the the Photoshop art I did for for whatever episode that is. And damned if I cannot come up with a visual image of of whatever in episode three had Scott's in my face pasted over it so maybe yeah you're probably right we probably haven't done well i'll i'll just say this we have come up we've we've come up with um we've come up with a plan to where to how scott and i can um regularly discuss star wars in the in the future coming up and what better year to do it? I sh- I have not mentioned this on a podcast, and I'm remiss because we're already 16 days into the year. This year, 2018, is the 10th anniversary year of Two True Freaks' existence. Yes, it is. It's not until summer that we hit the real, actual 10-year point of the you know the release of the. I think it's August was the first first episode of Two True Freaks came out of. 2008 but yeah we are we are in our 10 year uh, victory lap I guess I, <laughs> I, I mean like certainly when we started podcasting podcasting 10 years in the future was a, a very theoretical <laughs> concept so I'm quite proud that, that it's, it's still going 10 years later yeah well congratulations and uh, thank you again for uh, uh, joining in. This is uh, <laughs> uh, like I tell everybody: you don't have to thank me, citizen. I'm just doing my job. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it, uh, at least for the CGI discussion this week. Now, as to next week, I'm obviously going to be talking about more of Smallville season six, which is to say, Smallville's shippiest season but that is for next week so i think that's pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody i will see you next week we are out
everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, Big Magnus, Big Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is The Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of The Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com as well as iTunes. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, 
why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.